This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at myhealthpolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called myhealthpolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose myhealthpolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to myhealthpolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START myhealthpolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates myhealthpolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. This is Jack Wilson from the History of Literature. You're listening to a recorded history podcast. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Ro Sampson Folk, and today in the doldrums of the NBA offseason, I thought it'd be a great idea to just answer questions from listeners, from readers. So today is a mailbag episode. You guys ask questions, and my colleague Colin Connors has come on to answer them with me. Colin, how are you doing today, man? Not bad. Beautiful day here in Toronto. Looking forward to answering some questions. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm doing great. It is equally as beautiful in Puerto Vallarta. There was a, a Category 1 hurricane that rolled through here a couple days ago, but now the sun is shining and uh, all is well. Was that part of Dorian or anything, or was that its own thing? Um, no, it, it was like it's on the other coast. Uh, okay. Um, but... Uh, it's like hurricanes aren't usually crazy here because apparently like there's a mountain range right by the ocean. That's part of Arda. So apparently it's uh, tough okay. for hurricanes to like roll through here. So they're usually not so bad. And it, and it wasn't. It just feels like a heavy storm you'd get in Toronto, honestly, just like a lot of rain. But for longer, I think like it's unbroken for like a day and a half. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the mailbag. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read off the ones we got from Twitter first. We'll be responding to the Twitter questions. And also, there was a, uh, a post put up on Raptors Republic that we'll be responding to as well. And uh, so we'll get into it. David F. at D-F-R-R-N-T says, 
for rewatchers of the glorious 2019 playoff run, power rank the best games to watch. Which of the 24 games would you rewatch if it could only be one, three, five, or ten? This could fill minutes or hours. It's not current or forward-looking, but no Raptor fan will tire of this subject. Do you have a power ranking, even like a top three, off the dome? Uh, I went with five, but in no particular order. I've got game six versus the Bucks, game four versus the Sixers, game four versus the Warriors, game seven versus the Sixers, and game five versus the Warriors. What about yourself? That's Oh, that's interesting. Because you would think a lot of people, the closeout game for the, for the championship, that would be the one. But it did lose some of its gusto at the end. So I understand why like it was dropped. Um, I think, honestly, I, w- I would do it the same as you. But I think it's, I don't know, what, what stands out for you in those games that makes you rate it that high? So like game six against the Bucks. Why does that one say that, number one? Well, that might have been the best stretch of basketball that the Raptors played all season uh, in that run between the third and fourth quarters where they won. It was 26 to three. Kawhi scored an assist on about 10 straight, and then they took him out at the beginning of the fourth, which was their absolute Achilles heel for most of the playoffs. They usually got like absolutely killed during those minutes. But then Fred and Kyle were extremely steady. Fred hit a step back three. Kyle took a charge. You know, the crowd was going absolutely absurd. Then Kawhi comes back in and dunks all over Giannis to kind of snatch the best player in the world title from him and really cement that the Raptors are probably going to win this series. So that that one was, then the crowd was just absolutely incredible. Like I was, I rewatched some of it last night and you could barely even hear the announcer. <laughs> it was just great. Every time that dunk is brought up, it makes me think of the, the sneaky Kyle Lowry hold on Giannis <laughs> and just how that is absolutely Kyle Lowry's whole ethos is to play basketball that way. Like it's this hustle up the floor. It's this shovel back pass to Kawhi who's running. And then I'm pretty sure Kawhi could have got it down regardless, but Kyle Lowry can't help himself, but he just has to grab and hold Giannis. Could you imagine if a, like a foul had been called on that in that moment? Insanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is like a perfect encapsulation of Kyle as a player that played right there. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the most fun things about Kyle and his legacy. I think is that he has those he has a spot in place like that all the time like De- big DeMar DeRozan dunks from playoffs in years past you watch the tape back you see Kyle sitting in the lane and he's the guy who set the screen and it's just <laughs> things like that that throw the defense into disarray and he has this little spot in all these highlights that are always it's never like the typical point guard spot he's in the mix more often so he'll be under the rim He'll be grabbing the ball. It'll be something like that. And yeah, it's it's cool that we got like a quintessential Kyle Lowry moment, even in something that's like, you know, obviously a Kawhi Leonard moment. That's that's one of my favorite parts about that. Other things from game six, I mean, obviously, like Freddie. I, you know, I have a question. It's not like a mailbag question, but what did you think about Fred Van Vliet against the Warriors and against the Bucks a little bit? but a bit different in the two against the Bucks was hitting a lot more spot up three pointers and against the Warriors. He hit a lot of isolation shots. What do you think is closer to who he'll be sans Kyle Lowry? If that is the case, do you think he's more of an isolation score 
Or do you think like the heir apparent to Kyle Lowry, not that Kyle Lowry is an isolation scorer, but he'll be able to lift up a decent load of the offense? Or do you think that he's still a spot up shooter in the offense when, you know, the team doesn't have Kyle Lowry or Kyle Lowry shifts to like a smaller role? What do you think it is for Fred Van Vliet in the future? I just think his best strength is always going to be his ability off ball. He's such a good shooter. He's really good at moving without the ball. When the with the bench mob a few years ago, when they really like hit their stride, like they found their they had their best success when Delon was pushing the ball and Fred was kind of spacing the floor and whatnot. I just think at his size, like he's never going to be like an over you know an oversized athlete in any way. Like uh, being an isolation scorer is never going to be his forte. Like he can really pick his spots and be opportunistic, but I don't think he's ever going to be a every time down break you down type of guy. I think like his value is always going to come from just how savvy of a player he is in spot up situations and things of that nature. And I think that's the beauty of having him and Pascal to build around is the fact that he can play off Pascal so well. And I, I, I think he's very good with the ball in the sands. Like he's an exceptional pick and roll player. I just don't think isolation is really his, his forte. Oh, that's interesting. This has been one of the, my favorite conversations to have with, you know, basketball writers, fans, anyone really is the, the Fred Van Vliet of it all is you, you spoke about him and Pascal Siakam being people to build around. I think Pascal Siakam is a no-brainer, but is Fred Van Vliet, you know, entrenched in, like, is he for sure a building block, or is he a very good piece, an ancillary piece on, like, a title team, or is he somebody who, you know, he's a lead guard on a playoff team? Like, I'm very interested what you think of that. I don't think he'll ever end up becoming an all-star or anything of that nature, but I think he can be a very, very good lead guard on a playoff team. Like, I think um, he could top out as maybe, like, George Hill on Indiana. Just, like, very solid, defends the hell out of everybody. Like, advanced stats are going to, like, have him, like, you know, well above his value and just can, like, really almost like a glue guy in the sense that he gets the guy's balls in their spots and he can really make, like, he can really make shots off the ball and can run a, a very functional pick and roll when need be. I've Yeah, I've, I'm always so interested to see what people think of Fred Van Vliet. And not, it's not the question of whether he's good or not because he is – if you don't think he's good, if you're one of those people who's like, oh, Fred Van Vliet, who's that guy? It's probably not worth it to have the conversation. But if you have the underlying notion that, yes, he's good, he's very good, but like, what type of lead guard or bench guard or 3 and D guard is he going to project into? And who's he going to be until he's like 30, 31 years old? I think that's a, an interesting conversation. Game four against the Warriors do you have any big takeaways from that game? Because that, w- that was really huge. That's the Kawhi Leonard, like, expletive, we're going to take two game. Do you have any highlights from it off the dome? Um, those two threes Kawhi took to open the second half. The first one, he got, like, a really lucky bounce. It was more of, like, a set shot. And the second one, he just kind of comes down and pulls from a few feet behind the line with Draymond in his face. I know um, Fred called them FU shots after the game. Uh, I think those were kind of, like, moments that they kind of, uh, the Raptors asserted themselves that, like, we think we're the better team here. And Kawhi is kind of like, we're not afraid of the Warriors. We're not afraid of what they've done. And that was also the game that Fred really took it to Curry. Like, I know Curry got ended up finishing 9 for 22, but most of those came when the game was completely out of reach. I know there was a stretch where he was, like, 5 for 18 or 5 for 19. And Fred was just working the hell out of him, like, making him work for literally everything. Like, the Warriors couldn't score all game. The Raptors played incredibly well together. Serge had 20 off of, like, I think he was assisted on just about all of them. It was uh, that was the game that really made made me believe. Okay, the Raptors are the best team in the league right now, and I think a lot of other people agree. Yeah, I was well. I was going to ask you, like, how did that affect your viewing of 
the series because you know there's obviously you and I were we wrote about the series and we talked about the series ad nauseum for you know the site but also as a fan and also knowing the history of the Warriors you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop a little bit in that series did you have that feeling as well that you're like when is the honeymoon over for the Raptors when do the Warriors like take it back or does this series become extremely difficult like not that the Raptors get to play really good defense and lock Curry down for a 9 for 22 game but that Curry shoots like 11 of 16 clays like 10 of 14 and the Raptors have to make shots and it's like run and gun type of game but the series never became that what did you think about like waiting for the Warriors to reach their full potential in that series and the Raptors kind of stagnating it. I think that was the game that really showed us that against this Raptors defense, which is, you know, one of the best playoff defenses of all time, uh, the Warriors can't really reach their full strength against it. Like as much as um, like that game, Clay came back and Clay was absolutely incredible, but the 73 win core was there and they really couldn't really do anything about the fact that the Raptors had such a smothering defense. They, they were so keyed in on the two shooters. Um, they were like, all right, anybody else can beat us. And they had such a clear game plan and nobody else could really beat them. Sorry, all fans of McKinney. I really loved you with the Raptors. But, um, and then the Raptors offense was just ungodly smooth. Like there was a clear disconnect from one side to the other on how the two teams were playing. Like the Warriors were trying so hard to funnel their offense through Clay and Steph when the Raptors are doing everything to take those two away. Whereas the Raptors were playing like absolute team ball. Kawhi was uh great in that game but like it was pretty you know they kind of shared the wealth a bit fred had eight surge had 20 pascal 19 carl had 10 mark had nine which was a lot for mark in the playoffs at times so it was uh it was really great to watch well i'm I'm glad you brought up the the functionality of the raptors offense because it was really really bad against the 76ers and it was basically the Kawhi leonard show i mean like the historically low numbers the lebron in 2015 finals type numbers of the on off stats with Kawhi leonard and then in the finals you know the offense often turn over more to kyle lowry and fred van vliet Kawhi leonard wasn't able to just eat the sun and take every possession like he wanted to like he did for the first few games of the philadelphia series you spoke about one of the best defensive teams in the playoffs ever and what did you think, for me, watching that was obviously the intelligence of the defense, but also that they didn't have a weak spot on the floor. And they didn't. there was never a switch they had to concede. They were never giving up any spot on the floor, like the Curry pick-and-roll thing or the Curry switch thing that Houston always goes after or that Cleveland always goes after. That wasn't available to the Warriors. What else did you think was really important for the Raptors to defend the Warriors as well as they did? Yeah, I think you kind of hit it on the head. Like, there, not only was it like every single player in the rotation was a good defender, every single player in the rotation was like pretty close to an all NBA defender outside of maybe Norman Powell. Like, Serge, Fred, Mark, Danny, Pascal, Kawhi, and Kyle are all have all like at least sniffed an all NBA defense nod before and just like have kind of the collective intelligence where they could switch everything. They could like, well, not switch everything, but switch selectively. Like, they made like the most intelligent read you could possibly imagine. And, um, they like were so good at tiring out the Warriors. Like they made Steph work for everything. And like, you could tell that it was starting to wear on them. Like, okay, like could somebody else do something here? Like they did a really good job of just like making things as tough as possible. And on the other side, I kind of want to ask you, I haven't talked to you about this, but Serge Ibaka's offense during the finals, 
Do you have any words on that? Because I thought it was a really impressive display for him to come and be like the offensive punch for the Raptors off the bench. And that was that was who he was. And that's what he did. What was your takeaway for his role against the Warriors in the finals? Offensively, that is. Uh, it was just incredible. It was like what you kind of expected when uh, you were talking yourself into the tr- yourself into the trade a few years ago. Like, yeah, it kind of gave you flashbacks to um, back when he was with the the Thunder against the Spurs a few years ago when he had that like ten for ten game. He was very selective with his shots. He wasn't taking any like kind of strange turnaround fades. His touch around the like you know floater range or was like he. I don't think he missed a single floater the whole finals and. Um, he was he was cutting very well. Like I know Kyle found him really well a bunch of times. Like um, he wasn't like just kind of parking himself out by the three point line. He was very active. He was finding gaps and stuff like that. It was um, it was everything you could ask for from Search. It was um, I, I, he really endeared himself to me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it w- it was really cool to watch, and he was so mindful of his shot selection, and he performed at such a high clip that everything just kind of coalesced into this wonderful thing and you know he became a champion which was great the next question um from prabhyot or prabhyot is what are you guys most looking forward to this season could be a game or growth of a certain player or where Masai takes this team personally i can't wait for the home opener seeing the ring ceremony and banner will be priceless what are you looking forward to man i'm really curious to see what happens with pascal this year like there's so many different ways this could go. Like last year, um, with bringing Nurse in, they really changed the way they were going to use him on offense. They like quintupled the amount of post ups he used. He didn't really use near as many spot ups. Like and and now this year with he's going to have an uh, his role is going to grow even more. Is he going to be running pick and roll? Is he going to be taking? Is he going to get as many spot ups because people are going to be keyed in on him? Are they going to have him because he's like especially with Kawhi and Danny gone now? Like he's probably the best defender in this roster. Are they going to have him taking hard defensive assignments or are they going to like rest him? Are they going to play him at the five much and experiment with that? So it's a bit of a transition year because they could kind of maybe unlock their own Warriors lineup possibly with if they learn how to use Pascal at the five. Like there's so many different ways it could go. And I, I, I think he's going to, you know, blow the doors off the league this year, to be honest. I, I kind of foresee on defense, I think they're going to use him as a rover kind of. You know how Paul George was being used against mm-hmm. the or being used with Oklahoma City. I think we're gonna see him settle into a role like that. Like he's he's very smart defensively and not in a not in a very calculated way. But there's a lot like you can see it's just he has a nuance and a knack for how to kind of <laughs> engage with different offensive schemes and how to stop different things. That I think if you let him hang around the basket, sometimes if you let him hang around like the arc. Let him play how he wants to play. I think I think that's how they're going to use him. I'm not super sure. But it will be interesting, like you said, to see if he's... Because he is, to me, an all-NBA-level defender. So it'll be interesting to see if they put him up against, you know, number one options on the defending team. I mean, last year we saw him guard Russell Westbrook during the regular season. And in the playoffs two years ago, he was guarding John Wall as well. He's guarded, like, a litany of different players and... There's a lot of potential for even just his defense. And like you said, on offense, there's a lot of different ways to use him. The pick and roll, probably the biggest thing going forward, because if he's fast, if he's bouncy and adequate running the pick and roll, there's a lot of angles that he can create for the roller, for the dive man, and for himself going to the rim, that if he, you know, if he finds the pacing to run it correctly, that could be a really interesting wrinkle. For me, the most interesting thing, I think 
Well, there's two things, right? Is There's the future of the team, and that's Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi. And the podcast I did last week with Michael Pina, who's a great writer for SB Nation, the, most, the thing we were most interested about was the Pascal Siakam of it all, and rightly so. But as far as like a fan of this team and not looking too far ahead, I think Marcus Saul's offense, how he is integrated into the offense going into this year as opposed to last year, will be one of the most interesting, I guess, wrinkles for me this year. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they use him at the elbow. It's going to be really interesting to see how they use him for the five-out offense. And especially coming off of the FIBA World Cup, he was fantastic. He played awesome with Ricky Rubio. He was able to stretch the floor. And he was, you know, efficient inside. He has his guile, his strength, and his wit finishing there. And his defense will always be, you know, crafty and great. So I'm, I'm interested to see what his role is sans Kawhi Leonard. I think that's the most interesting thing for me. What do you think about Marcus Gasol next year? Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. I'm here to tell you about my podcast, The History of Literature. Hello. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Hello. Oh, hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennett. Hello. Come on Hello. In. I'm Emily Dickinson. Hello. This is Bartleby. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. The Scrivener. Whoa. On the history of literature, we journey through the world of great books, taking a look at everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh to contemporary classics. We talk to authors and professors, and once in a while, we have a special guest. Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. The History of Literature podcast with Jack Wilson, where literature comes to life. Join us. We'll consider ourselves grateful. Thank you, Oliver. More gruel, please, sir. You bet. Yeah, I, I, that's actually a really good point, because especially where when he came in, he really took a passive role on offense. Like, there were games, you know, where he would take four or five shots. He took the least amount of shots per 36 than he has basically since he was, you know, 25 years old. And uh, But that's kind of also the beauty of Mark. Like, I remember in one of the games in the World Cup, he didn't take his first shot until I think there was about four minutes left in the game when they, I think it might have been when they upset Serbia or something like that. And, um, yeah, I'm really curious to see, because especially where they have a training camp to figure out how they're going to incorporate him. And he is arguably, you know, one of the most established offensive players in this roster, although that's not really, you know, his MO to try and be a scorer. If this team wants to, like, you know, try and be the best version of itself, they're going to need him to be. So uh, as someone that hasn't watched, you know, Mark on, on a nightly basis prior, besides like, you know, a few months last year where he was really not really playing like the Mark that we've saw through most of his career. I'm very excited to see how they use him. Like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how, what kind of pick and roll chemistry him and Kyle and him and Fred can develop. Because I think he's, you know, a very intelligent short roll passer. And I think that can, that's going to be very fun to watch. Yeah, and like not only in the pick and roll, but like his elbow offense, I think will be really interesting too. Because not only is he going to be incredibly important for spacing, but the Raptors have a few players that are going to cramp the spacing as well, and that do rely on finding gaps in the defense and cutting. Like Rondé Hollis Jefferson, Stanley Johnson, OG Ananobi, all pretty prolific cutters in their own way. Especially they have to be creative in that way because they don't shoot the ball extremely well. Obviously, OG shoots it better than the rest of them, or at least has so far in his career. And I think the same way that there was that stretch last year where Patrick McCaw, Norman Powell, OG were all getting a lot of dump-offs from Marcus Gasol, and it was really kind of expanding their offensive roles, at least when they shared the floor with them. I think that could be a big part of the offense this year because they are going to have to be creative in the ways that they get looks for like Ronnie Hollis-Jefferson, Stanley Johnson, OG Ananobi. 
And I think that takes me into the next Twitter question, which I think is, is a really good question from Will Conkin. Are you guys more high on Rondé Hollis Jefferson or Stanley Johnson? And what song or songs are they going to play during the ring ceremony? I'll throw that one over to you. Um, I think for the songs, I feel like they'll probably just play big rings. Or <laughs> I feel like if they play anything besides the Drake song, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. So I think they'll stick to that formula. But as for uh, Stan Lee and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, I'm definitely higher on Rondé Hollis-Jefferson as of right now because he's shown so much more. And especially coming off of a really good playoff series against Philly, you know, he's basically like an improved version of Pat McCaw at the four. He's just like a complete Swiss Army knife, you know, he can re- his rebound assists, block and steal rates are all incredible, but he can't really do much to score offensively. But I think he can do a really good job fitting around like a very intelligent team. Like if he's still playing alongside lineups with Mark and Kyle and, and Pascal, he'll find a way to create an effect. But obviously the higher upside is 100% Stanley Johnson. He might be the most tantalizing player in the league. He's built like a running back at 6'8", but like a 6'8 running back. He's got all, NBA, uh, all defense upside, but he just really hasn't found a way to find his stroke. And his turnover issues are really bad. Like, I know he's had a negative assist to turnover ratio for just about his entire career. But the Raptors are very good at getting the most out of guys like that. Like, we've seen from OG, they found a way to um, get the most out of him, at least in his rookie year. So if they can find a way to use him in a similar manner, like, you know, as a baseline cutter, uh, corner three-point shooter, at least in the first year, maybe if he does decide to say to pick up his player option and stay the second year, I think they can really get a lot out of him. Well, I think it's really interesting, too, right, is that, I think Rondé Hollis-Jefferson's floor is a lot higher than Stanley Johnson's. But adversely, the ceiling for Stanley Johnson represents a much higher you know, ceiling than Rondé Hollis-Jefferson's. And I was talking to Michael Pina about this last week, and it really shocked me because I had also had this conversation with Matt Schantz where we were kind of we were very happy that Rondé Hollis-Jefferson was signed by the Raptors, and we thought it was a really smart signing because his lack of shooting – makes him underrated league-wide, but he does a lot of other things really well. But Michael Pena, who lives in Brooklyn and watched a lot of him, he was under the impression that he thought he wouldn't get another NBA contract. And Michael's a really smart guy, so he kind of threw a wrench in how I was viewing him. But I think that Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, especially on a team with Kyle Lowry and Marcus Gasol, really, really smart players like that, I think he'll have a better year than Stanley Johnson. I, I do think I'm not a big Stanley Johnson believer, but all the things that you said about him being, you know, built like a running back, having tantalizing athletic potential, being, you know, a bull on defense, all that is true. And just because I don't believe in him doesn't mean that he's not going to be incredible or could, you know, transcend the things that have been bothering his game and slowing him down. He could be, man, he could be a really special player. He could be exactly what we thought OG was going to be before his tumultuous last year. Like, he could be headed for this Kawhi Leonard light type of career just based on his physical profile. He just has to fill out the rest and be the rest, right? And I think that's what makes it interesting is to talk about Stanley Johnson, is to talk about a guy who just has so many gifts and he just has to figure out how to make it all work and, and mold together to become some type of player. But he hasn't been able to do that. And I'm I'm glad the Raptors took a chance on him, but for this year I'm I'm a Rondé Hollis Jefferson guy. I think he'll have a a good year passing with you know Siakam, Lowry, Gasol filling the gaps, finding lanes out in transition, or just making good basket cuts. 
And yeah, I think he'll have a good year, an efficient year, not a James Johnson efficiency year, but you know, a good year. The next question from Michael G. Coffey: Are there any realistic trades? The big, big contract three: Gasol, Abaka, and Lowry for us slash Raps this year that could bring us to the finals. Having them all walk with nothing in return next summer seems like a long road to being contenders again. Well, I don't think there's any real like. I think the finals is a bit of a stretch like i think once like raptors fans realize this isn't a contention year like kind of plain and simple uh the easier this year will be like this is a transition year kind of in every way shape or form and i think that's kind of how they need to see like know that that's how messiah is going to approach it i know there's probably like a selling point where say if they're the six seed at the trade deadline he'll probably sell off but if they're the three seed or something like that he'll probably keep a few more but I think it's more likely they go the other way and move them for younger pieces rather than like win now pieces and try to get more on Pascal's timeline and OG and stuff like that. Get, you know, whether it's young picks or young players, I mean, first round picks or young players or something like that. I think that's a lot more likely, but I don't really see any type of what, I don't see any situation where they move Kyle to be honest, but I think it's more than likely they move both Mark and search. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And it's something that I think is really interesting because we spent, you know, a decent amount of time talking about how Marcus Gasol will help unlock guys like, Hollis Jefferson, Ananobi, Stanley Johnson, and how important he's going to be to the offense, at least predictably, you would think, but also that he might just be taken away from the team. And on the one hand, maybe that does stagnate some growth that you want on the roster, but depending on the package that's being sent back, you're probably willing to do that because it's either going to fast forward the rebuild or it's going to bring you another interesting player, one that you know it gives you four times the chance you get Stanley Johnson, Player X, Hollis Jefferson, and Ananobi to build around, you know, along with Fred VanVleet and Pascal Siakam, of course. And then you kind of say, it's going to be tough out there, space is going to be cramped, but figure it out, especially if Ibaka goes as well, because then who's your big man? Is it Chris Boucher? Is it, like, what's happening with that? So the Raptors next year could devolve into a very interesting and weird team, especially if both Ibaka and Gasol go. But like like Mike notes is that it would be tough if they all walked for nothing and none of them returned. Especially Kyle Lowry, you know, is if he left and just never came back. That that would be a tough pill to swallow. You know, I think a lot of people would like to see him sign on afterwards for maybe a reduced not a thirty million per year. Um, contract, but something like that. And to lose Marcus Saul and Serge Ibaka without getting any assets in return would also be a tough pill to swallow. But that's, you know, that's Masai's whole thing is you have to weigh what you're going to get in return, what you're giving out, and like how to build with the future in mind. Obviously, we've seen he did it right once in a way that has very rarely ever been done before the one year rental for a championship where the, the MVP leaves, the finals MVP leaves. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like, yeah, Mike, like you note, it's a, it's a long road back, probably, especially without a wing player or a guard to build around because Pascal Siakam, he's a big man. It's tough to build around big men for, you know, young teams, for rebuilding teams. That's a, a tough ask. But, you know, that's the way forward. And I'm sure Masai will figure it out. There's uh, one more Twitter question that we're going to get into. Canoe Girl says, seems like Kyle Lowry might be coaching material after he retires. 
Are there any precedents for players who have a formal coaching role in their last couple of years as a player? I can't think of any. Do you know any? Um, well, there's, you know, if you go back to the 60s, there's player coaches like Bill Russell and whatnot. But the example that Nick came Nurse. to mind for me was... Not in the NBA, though. <laughs> yeah, in the British League. <laughs> uh, the one that came <laughs> to mind for me was uh, Earl Watson. A few years ago, when he took his last contract with Portland, to, uh, like part of the contract was... They wanted him to come in and mentor Lillard because he was only in like his first or second year. But they also said that he could be part of their coaching routine. So he was in coaching meetings and whatnot every day because he was pretty certain that he wanted to become a coach after his career. But to be fair, Kyle Lowry is a far, far better player than Earl Watson. And Earl Watson was on his last legs when that kind of came around. So I think Kyle's, you know, like three or four, if not five years away from really saying like, okay, I want to spend half my time working on my coaching and stuff like that. But also from the perspective of, I don't really know if Kyle would want to become a coach in the sense that like he, he doesn't really have the clout to get a head coaching job right off the bat, like a Jason Kidd or a Derek Fisher. And the life of an NBA assistant coach is not glamorous at all. So unless it's something that he's very, very like adamant that this is what I want to do, I don't see him just kind of like dipping his toes into it. But then again, like Kyle's a very unpredictable person and he is an absolute basketball savant. So if he wants to get into it, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying he wouldn't be successful at it because I think he definitely would. It's just not a very uh, glamorous life to kind of like, you kind of go back to the bottom and he just, you know, spent all this time working himself up to become this great NBA player. I, I don't know if it was something that would totally interest him. Yeah. And not to, not to play into the armchair psychology too much. And I, I don't want to be offensive to Kyle Lowry, but from the outside looking in the, you know, the, the media consensus is that like a lot of the time he can't be bothered. And that doesn't mean he's a bad guy by all counts. He's a super nice person, but when interacting with people, he likes to do it on his terms and he likes to do it his way, which he's afforded the ability to. And that's fine because he's great and he's a basketball savant, like you mentioned. But being that type of person doesn't really lend you a coaching job. You know what I mean? Is like when you're a coach, a lot of the time you're in service, especially in the NBA, of other players. Whereas Kyle Lowry, people are in service to his kind of basketball ideology on the floor. Like he's fantastic. He's selfless. He's a great playmaker. But how he views the game, at least, you know, the stories of how it's voiced in practice or in huddles or during the game is how Kyle sees the game is pretty much the most important for how the Raptors operate and obviously to great success. But being an assistant coach or working his way up like you like you mentioned, that doesn't seem like it services that ideal for him. And like you said, he probably doesn't have the clout to just walk into a head coaching position. So, you know, I think it would be kind of kind of strange. But also, I'm not like Dumbar DeRozan. I'm not, you know, homies. I'm not hanging out with Kyle Lowry all the time. So maybe <laughs> I'll put the armchair psychology to the side for a second. But it seems like kind of the antithesis of what he's been about, especially with how he handles himself. It's kind of like he's doing his own thing all the time. But with a coach, being a coach, everything has to be focused around other people a lot of the time, I think. And that's, you know, I think that's probably really important. Um, we have a question here from RaptorsRepublic.com because we did put a post up there from Mr. Tonic. Do you think the Raptors can make up the Kawhi gap by playing stifling defense and getting their points in transition? Will there be money to be made taking the underline in Raptors games, at least until Vegas wises up? So I'll take the lead on this one because you already answered it a little bit earlier on is that the Raptors fans probably have to get used to the idea that the finals aren't a viable option 
And I agree with that sentiment. I don't think the finals are a viable option. I don't even really think the Eastern Conference finals are a viable option. I think the Raptors are, as currently constructed, a tough out in the second round. And, you know, that's okay for them to be that. We just won a chip for the first time, and that's very exciting, and that's very good. Do I think there's money to be made taking the under line in Raptors games? Not that I'm proficient at betting or anything, but I think that there's going to be a lot. Like, I probably... See, this is tough. In specific games, from like a game-to-game basis, probably the Raptors get underrated, I guess, quite often by Vegas. You could have made a lot of money last year um, betting with them. And, you know, especially their... Season total, I would probably bet the over that they're going to win more games than they were projected to this year. But also, that really depends on what kind of trades go on. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree that they're gonna, their defense is definitely going to be their calling card, especially with the guys they brought in. Like They're going to have some pretty incredible defensive lineups. Like If they go big with you know, OG, um, Stanley Johnson, Pascal, and like Mark or something like that with like Fred running the point. Like, I think they have the potential to be a top five defense for sure. So I think on the individual game basis, taking the under is probably a, a good plan because there's definitely going to be some nights where they struggle to score and, you know, they win like a mucked up 88 to 82 game or something like that. But I agree that on the season, I think it would be a good idea to take the over, especially if like it, if they, if they come out the gate strong, like I think it's more than likely um, Sai will find a way to at least keep them together to an extent. And I, like, you know, it's kind of the, the consensus is usually that the Raptors get a little bit underrated in, in national uh, conversations and stuff like that. So their line is, I'm not quite sure what their line is right now, but I can imagine it's probably a bit lower than people would expect. So I think I remember seeing it at like 44 or 46, something around yeah. there. But I think, you know, provided that the team stays together, I think they should eclipse 46. I would expect because the team, you know, Kyle Lowry leading it, Pascal Siakam still, you know, surging. Fred Van Vliet, Marc Gasol, Serge Ibaka. There's, there's still a lot of talent on the team. And hopefully a good year for Moji Ananobi. I think, I think they'll win probably close to 50 games if they stay um, together. The next question from Miro. How do the Raptors rank in merchandise sales around the world in comparison to other teams? And I'll just I'll, I'll say this. They were ninth in merchandise sales during the regular season. What happened after they won the championship? I'm not sure. I'm sure that'll be reported later on. But I would assume it's now a lot higher than ninth. What do you think? Yeah, I think especially where they have such a a global footprint on their team, like, you know, with Pascal and Mark um, and Serge and whatnot, like, I think they can kind of reach a few more markets than other teams. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit higher, especially based off of, you know, winning the title and whatnot. That's always going give to you, give you a pretty generous bump. But, um, like, you know, there's always, especially in, in North America, there obviously is always going to be the Canadian. Uh, you're going to be a little bit lower just based off of Americans not wanting to wear the Canadian team's gear and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I still think that they, they, this is probably the peak in terms of where they'll be most likely. <laughs> Yeah, I think so, too. Like you mentioned, the goal of footprint is also, like, I hope that if I ever travel to Lagos, like, in Nigeria or London, England, I hope I see OG Ananobi everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to see those jerseys all the time. Just, I think that would be cool as hell. And, yeah, I think that there's a Canadian, like, there's a maple leaf on the Raptors jersey, which, obviously, for Canadians, that's great. 
And I think it's cool to see that on the jersey. But for Americans, probably a decent amount of them kind of turn their nose up at that. Like, they don't want to wear that. But if you like the Raptors from the jump, that probably wouldn't bother you. But some people buy jerseys because they think it looks cool. So who's to say? Um, Andrew says, what, if anything, can anybody really take from YouTube videos of Rico Hines, Summer League, and or any of the other basketball type stuff over the summer? Is the World Cup at least a little bit predictive, i.e. Gasol, <laughs> Gasol can still beast? Is there anything that you put stock in at all? I'll swing this one to you. Well, last year I, I did a lot of the summer stuff, like looking at the Rico Hines uh, tape, especially from the perspective of Pascal. And he showed a lot in those runs last summer because he, he was there just, I think he was there like three times a week. Like they go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and he missed like two the whole summer. And you could kind of see his progress as the summer went on. Like towards the beginning of the year, he was mainly just like picking and rolling for guys like James Harden, like playing the token Clint Capella role. But on days where there wasn't guys there, he was like leading the break and his jumper, you could see the progress coming along as it went. And I remember at the end of the year, I was like, I would always say like, uh, when I make those posts, like, yeah, you can't really take anything from pickup. This is just to like enjoyment from watching. But at the end of the summer, I said, like, as much as I use that qualifier every single time, like, I think Pascal is definitely going to take a step this year. And he ended up, he ended up doing so because as much as it's not great basketball, it's still basketball. And when you see stuff that, you know, a spot up jumper, is kind of a spot of jumper really wherever you are. So you, there's, you, you have, there has to be a bit of nuance in what you judge. Like, you know, if you see a guy blowing down the lane when guys aren't really defending very hard, you can't really take much from that. But if you see someone making progress in their handle or in their uh, standstill jump shot, you can take something from that. But yeah, I agree, also agree that the World Cup is definitely the most predictive of all of it. Like, um, Gasol not being extremely hungover from the championship is a very, is a very encouraging sign based off of his uh, World Cup performance. So I think that's a good sign. And also, Ricky Rubio and the Suns are obviously going to be incredible now. <laughs> but, well, also, like you said about the Rico Hines thing, I think that it's important to, like, qualify everything when you're watching that. But it's kind of a testament to how tough it is to actually perform in an arena against NBA defense that as soon as that's kind of taken out of the equation, that these guys just don't miss that often like of course there's the the videos cut to make them look good but also like if you go watch the games at Rico Hines if you watch any type of pickup for NBA players like it's really high level stuff and they you know they they make a lot of shots they do a lot of cool dribble moves they make a lot of cool passes they break out a lot of interesting different things and honestly it's you know you have to qualify it all because like you said, there are some things to take away from it. And at the end of the year, the cumulative of it, like a, a full summer of playing basketball, can be huge and transformative for a guy like Pascal. But if you're just watching like the the mixtape of it, it's hard to be like as an analyst, as a fan, you probably don't want to just take that and say, well, this means this, because the mixtape is, you know, it is what it is, a mixtape. Andrew Wiggins had like, the best mixtape of all time in high school. And now now he is what he is on the, the Timberwolves. And, you know, that spin into the lane, two-foot jump for a dunk that worked in high school, never worked in Kansas, worked about four times in the NBA and once on Rudy Gobert, which is cool, but it's not really predictive for the success in the NBA. But, like you said, Pascal Siakam getting to expand his role in those games, getting to try out new things, especially for a guy who learns so quick like he does, 
because he hasn't been practicing and playing pickup like that his whole life. A lot of NBA players have. They've been doing that type of thing since they are like eight years old, seven years old. Siakam, not to beat the dead horse of, oh, he started so late, but he did start later than most. And he's picking up things at a, you know, a faster rate, a faster clip. And maybe that means that the Rico Hines stuff is a little bit more predictive for him. On the whole, though, I don't put any stock into anything I see. I just, you know, you enjoy the highlights of it. And like you said about Gasol, I think that's, yeah, I think that's just fine and dandy. I think it's really interesting to see him play that way for Spain. And it seemed like Spain's golden era was done, except it wasn't. And I think there's a lot of cool players on Spain. So that was, that was fun to see. <clears throat> Next question from Arshdeep Singh. What's your top eight seed standing for the Eastern Conference? And I'll, I'll let you go first. And I'll tell you if I disagree on any points. Um, obviously Milwaukee won, Philly two, and, um, I think if the Raptors keep things together, I've actually kind of got them slotting into third season. I know that might surprise some people, but I'm not super high on Brooklyn or Indiana or Boston. I think Boston losing Horfer is going to have a much bigger effect than people think. And as much as Kemba is a better locker room guy than Kyrie is, he's a very significant talent downgrade. So I'd have Boston four, uh, Indiana five, um, Orlando seven, Brooklyn, sorry, Orlando six, Brooklyn seven, and then I'd say Detroit eight. Um, yeah, I, that's that's pretty good for the the top end. I think I go Milwaukee one, Philly two, but Philly going to the finals, Raptors mm-hmm. three, Celtics four, five is the Heat for me. Jimmy and oh, their wow. their new workout oh, plan with Bam Adebayo. Yeah, and then six, probably Indiana. Seven, I would go Magic, and eight, Nets slash Pistons. I'm not high on the Nets, but we'll see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, reconsidering, I'd probably have the Heat falling in around the 5-6 range. I I actually could see them maybe even being better than Indiana. I think people are underrating... uh, like the fact that Oladipo probably won't come back as the player that he was and building an offense around Jeremy Lamb and Malcolm Brogdon and Miles Turner is going to be tough. And also like Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolstra and everybody on Miami kind of knowing their role and playing that specific system, I think will be very conducive to regular season success at the very least. I'd assume from Robert Parrish zero zero. Will the league tightening up the travel rule Help or hurt the Raptors? Are there any prolific travelers on the Raptors? I know Kyle Lowry does every time he throws an outlet pass, but I don't know if anyone else is like a serial pivot mover or anything like that. Like Pascal has pretty clean footwork a lot of the time. Can you think of anybody? Not really, no. I think on the whole, it's going to be good for the league, but I uh, I don't think it's going to hurt the Raptors in any real way. So, Yeah, I don't think so either. Well, you, you obviously you watch a lot of James Harden. What do you think about his one-foot three-point shot? Is, the, is that a way to navigate the new travel rule? What do you think? Maybe he got warned about it, and that's probably why he got into it. But I don't know. I think he, I really hope he gets called for a travel on some type of step back three this year because sometimes he is really stretching those, uh, the gather idea to a bit of an extreme. So, like, Do you remember that time last year when Curry did the two, the two uh, steps step back and then put the one-three up? It was like if, I'm, if I was number 13, you wouldn't call that. And it's like completely true. Like refs are just kind of afraid to call stuff on Harden, and I hope that this kind of gives them a bit more leeway to do so. But also, 
and I guess to play devil's advocate, but also I really like James Harden. I really like oh, what he's been lie. able to do with this game. Um, he is so damn good at it, don't you think? Like, he's taken that rule and manipulated it so well, and not even from, like, an obnoxious point of view, but, like, the way he interacts with that rule and the way he stretches it is actually kind of interesting. I don't know if it bothers you, but I watching him play and watching him, like, use the gather step and seeing how far he can stretch it, is really interesting to me. And I think there's a reason why Steph Curry would get called because he's not as practiced at it. Like mm-hmm. Steph Curry's use of the gather step wasn't as deft as uh, James Harden's, although James Harden's isn't always as deft as it could be. What do you think about his move? Because I really like that move. I think it's an awesome move to watch. And I, yeah, I, I, I like I watching agree. James Harden interact with that. I completely agree. I think it's up there with, like, you know, the Kareem Skyhook and Dirk one-legged fadeaway in terms of, like, uh, unstoppable uh, signature moves and whatnot. But I think one of the things that's underrated about it is how good he is at drawing fouls based on how he uses the gather. Because he does kind of take, like, you know, it's almost like a two-motion type of uh, step back where the first uh, move he does is almost, like, really quick. And then his second little, like, shuffle of the feet is very slow. So people lunge forward expecting him to take his second step as fast as he took that little first one and then they end up almost always ending up under him and he's so good at like if you're even with him like you know a two a, like a half a foot radius of him he can kind of like you know land on you or flail a bit he's he just really mastered like in terms of like those are the rules of the game and he knows how to use the rules of the game to his advantage and like and even when he doesn't use them to his advantage he, may, he makes about 40 percent of them so he's he, it's, it's absolutely unguardable to be completely yeah. honest Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, one of the most interesting things about that move, specifically, is the lunge comes. The give and go after that, like, you pass it, you make the basket cut after your guy lunges at you. I think that's incredibly hard to defend. And, like, he does it every once in a while, right? Like, he'll take the step back, and then if Eric Gordon is just, like, on the 45 extended, he'll swing it to him, and he'll just pass it right back to Harden. Suddenly Harden's going like straight downhill for a two-on-one. It's either a layup dunk or a lob to Capella, something like that. Or he'll spray it to the corner. And like you brought up is that it's not just a fast move he does. It's he can do anything at any point in time. Like he has his pickup points at the move. He has where he can still use the dribble. He has like his pivot in a way. And just he's always watching. Like he's not just picking up like using the gather dribble getting into his motion and shooting like he's waiting on a number of things to happen before he acts on what he wants to do in that in that move like it it's kind of like a triple threat for him that there's a lot of different ways he could go with it it's not like just a pickup for a jump shot and yeah I even though it's like corny and I know a lot of people dislike James Harden watching him interact with the rules has been really interesting and I there's a part of me I know it's like a, a basketball player thing. I know you hoop a lot. I don't know if you appreciate it, but like guys who hoop, I think there's this appreciation of ISO ball a little bit because you really you really understand how hard it is to just ISO up all the time and just get buckets repeatedly. And watching James Harden and Chris Paul do that, just taking turns and stuff like that has been one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had watching basketball, even though it's not like the beautiful type of basketball like Golden State it's just grind it out like all right D up I'm gonna score on you or I'm not gonna do it is is really entertaining for me but yeah James Harden 
He's I know he's a maligned figure, but he's he's fantastic to me. <laughs> and so for the Raptors he, podcast, I'll wax poetic about James Harden for uh, the end of it. Hmm. Um, one more question from Timo in Waterloo. Well, not even a question, really. He just has a picture of himself in front of uh, the stadium, which is cool. And this guy's commented on other things of mine before. He's super nice, big fan of the Raptors. I guess I'll I'll turn this into a question. Do the Raptors become a more viable tourist option after this? Is that is that a, is that a thing? You mean the Raptors or Toronto itself? The Raptors part of Toronto, because you know when you go to Toronto or Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, there's certain subsects of the city that you go to for different things. Is the arena more of a draw now that they're, you know, the defending champions, or does Kawhi Leonard's exit kind of remove that away from it? I think it definitely is, especially amongst Canadians. Like, you know, the 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 way that it kind of captured the whole country, where there was Jurassic Park in just about every single city. Like, I know a lot of my friends in the, like, I'm from Newfoundland originally. A lot of them want to come visit sometime, especially like, you know, once they get some type of memorial or some some type of monument up to the championship, like whether that's a statue of Kauai or something like that like I know it's especially in terms of like the Raptors prior this year were a little bit of like not like a laughing stock but like almost like a malign just based off the way uh, LeBron had treated them the last few years so I think it's gonna do a lot in terms of like making people want to come to the arena and like want to come and like walk outside it like you know when you go to Chicago and you walk outside the United Center you almost feel this like aura around it and uh, I think the Raptors are you know at least have a little bit of that now and when the Kyle Lowry statue goes up there will be a lot of pictures taken with it as well. Something, mm-hmm. yeah. And I wonder next year, just because of the Raptors name attached to it, I wonder if the the attendance of opposing teams will go up. Like during the Vince Carter years, if you go look at attendance numbers, the Raptors had like a top three away game attendance, like difference percentile when Vince Carter was on the team. Because like if Vince Carter was coming to town, people were getting into the opposing gym to watch him. Even though it wasn't the Raptors team, it was just you wanted to go see Vince Carter. Do you think there's going to be any aspect of that in the fandom that they want to go see the defending champions? Do you think that'll rise this year at all? Uh, I, I Actually, I don't really think it will because I think a lot of the draw would have been to see Kawhi. And yeah. now that he's gone, I think a lot of people are just going to be like, okay, this is a second-round fodder uh, team. So I don't think there'll be as much of uh, people like trying their best to go see it. I think there's going to be eight people the duration of the year that that saw Kyle Lowry and just were smitten with his game and like wow everybody had it wrong the whole time Kyle Lowry is fantastic i love playoff Kyle Lowry and there's going to be eight people and we're we're all going to love them for it but it's not going to be a, a sizable amount at all the last question from Jules McCool's management great name if we traded away Lowry Gasol and Ibaka separately or together god could you imagine that trade all three of them what kind of return could we get also how did you come up with your have a blessed day sign off well i'll let you um get into the the type of return what do you think um well i think a lot of it's going to be dependent on how they look to start the year because as much as their uh playoff run like definitely boosted their value i think you know if they come out and they look you know they're 10 pounds overweight and they're not really like looking uh, very sharp. Their value is obviously going to drop a lot. Like if they have a Dallas Mavericks 2012 type of year, but um, 
I, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't really have the trade machine up right now, so I can't say for certain what they could get, but I think um, Gasol and Lowry especially could pull a lot of value. Like, you know, both of those guys can show they're still very high level starters in this league. Abaka, I feel like would maybe at best net like a, a couple seconds, similar to maybe Miritich last year, just to be like a depth piece for someone trying to like really swing for the fences. But I think Lowry and Gasol could definitely have like very good returns. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you want to bet Masai is on the phone with somebody right now? Saying like Marcus All, he almost won MVP. He was the most important player for Europe. Give me Jalen Brown. Like, <laughs> like there's something like that going on right now. Like he's trying to swing something. I think Marcus All, as far as trades go, it would be really interesting to see if he was being asked for from like Western Conference teams who are projecting maybe Jokic playoff matchups. Like if he's being you know, mired in those types of situations. I think that's a possibility. Also, like you said, how they play matters, obviously. But obviously, if you win a championship, there's a little gold star that gets put next to your name, and you become one of those people who teams always want to have on, on their squad for the playoffs because you have the playoff experience, you have championship experience, you can talk the, the locker room through things. So Ibaka, Lowry, and Gasol all having that, I obviously is super important. Lowry, I think, would be really tough to trade because he's so good still that I don't think they'd be able to get a good enough package for him. And maybe that's a bit of homerism playing into how I view that, but I think that what he does on the floor is super hard to replace, and so much of it is underrated in the trade market that I just don't know if you could get what you wanted back. Like There are things like you could get like Jeff Teague or something, and maybe a pick, but is that enough? Does that make you happy at the end of the day? This is this is the point guard who took you to a championship. He's in the war of the Raptors forever. Like, what does what does that become for the fans, Masai Ujiri, everybody at large? But Gasol, I think, probably is the most likely to go. I would think, and he could have a really good playoffs on the team, especially as a Jokic or Embiid. Um, defender. I think it'd be really interesting to see that. And Ibaka, I mean, Ibaka was great in the playoffs last year, so you get any number of things back for him. But I would guess that it would be picks and cap relief or something like that. Like something to open up the books for when they try and pair Pascal Siakam and Giannis Antetokounmpo together. Something of that ilk. And for me, how did I come up with your, with my have a blessed day sign off? Um, I don't view have a blessed day as like specifically religious or spiritual. I think it can apply to any spirituality, which I think is nice. And I think it's a nice sentiment to give to people. I think, you know, it's uh, it's personal, it's uh, heartfelt, and I generally mean it. Whenever I finish a piece, I feel pretty good, and I, I glow in my optimism, and I feel warm because, you know, I just accomplished something. And I really, there's a reason I respond to the comments and there's a reason I do mailbags and stuff like that is I really appreciate the readership, listenership, viewership of all the stuff that I do. I think it's a, a really cool thing to be a part of. I grew up reading Raptors Republic, so I'm, I'm very appreciative of the people who write on this site. I'm very appreciative of the people who read this site and who interact on this site. And it's, you know, it makes me feel good. And so that makes me wish blessings upon everybody who who graces any one of my posts or or podcasts so that's that's where it comes from it's not specifically a religious thing or anything like that do you have any sign-offs you use 
Uh, not really. I guess I haven't really had a consistent platform enough to really give one, but I'd like to develop one at some point for sure. Do you do so, you have anything think, in the works? Not <laughs> Does as anything yet. come to mind? <laughs> no, I'll workshop some maybe next time I'm on, but we'll see. Oh, then you you could have the sign off. Could be pretty good. <laughs> mm. Well, I feel like that's a a great place to leave it. A mailbag episode, yeah. almost almost an hour. I think we talked about a lot of interesting stuff, cascading over different uh, topics. But I, I think we did a good job. I feel good about how we answered most of the things. How are you feeling? Great. Yeah, I was really pleased with the questions the listeners had. Like you know, Not Raptors Republic. We have very intelligent listeners, listeners and readers. There you go. Um, is there anything that you have coming up or anything you want to plug or talk about before we get out of here? Uh, no, nothing as of yet. Like, I'm sure I'll have some good preseason pieces eventually, but uh, that's still a few weeks off. So looking forward to the season. All right. For you, listener, if you liked Colin's takes, his point of view, his perspective, you can get more of that at Colin Connors 4, and that's on Twitter. And obviously, if you read Raptors Public, you'll see him posting frequently or infrequently whenever he gets it up and for me i'm uh, i'm sam folk you don't need to follow me on twitter it seems a cesspool to me so just ignore it and uh thank you so much for listening colin thank you so much for coming on again man and Thanks for having uh, me on. yeah and to everybody have a blessed day and mm. goodbye hello i'm jack wilson i'm here to tell you about my podcast the history of literature hello this is Edgar Allan Poe. Hello. Oh, hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennet. Hello. Of Come on in. I'm Emily Dickinson. Hello. This is Bartleby. Hello, it's me, Lady Macbeth. The Scrivener. Wow. On the history of literature, we journey through the world of great books, taking a look at everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh to contemporary classics. We talk to authors and professors, and once in a while, we have a special guest. Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. The History of Literature podcast with Jack Wilson where literature comes to life. Join us. We'll consider ourselves grateful. Thank you, Oliver. More gruel, please, sir. You bet. Just in time for the holidays, fill your home and your season for less at homedepot.com. With up to 40% off a wide assortment of select bedding and bath linens, update your bed or bath online, right from the comfort of your own cozy couch. Even get free delivery and flexible returns. How's that for holiday cheer? Up to 40% off. Holiday home decor improved from homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.